This episode of the podcast has been brought to you by Sweet Cheetah Publicity. Sweet Cheetah is an inclusive, socially conscious PR collective that puts their money where their mouth is. They have a current roster of bands that reads like a greatest hits anthology. Brainiac, Catholic School, Jawbox, The New Amsterdams, Oceans in the Sky. I mean, the list goes on and on. They also do PR for record labels such as A La Carte, Arctic Rodeo, Steadfast, Rad Girlfriend, and so many more. How do they pay it forward? How do they put their money where their mouth is? By generating thousands of dollars in annual charitable donations to the likes of Women in Vinyl, Coalition of Communities of Color, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and many, many more. The man has the receipts. I've seen them. It is real. The artists, labels, and podcasts Sweet Cheetah works with are curated with an eye on working primarily with friends. You could find Sweet Cheetah on all of the social media platforms, be it Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Just look for Sweet Cheetah PR and they will be there. He's been Tim. I've been Peter. And Sweet Cheetah has been beautiful. Welcome to another edition of the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. I'm your host, Peter, and I am still here. And tonight it is my pleasure to bring to you the EP release party for Funeral Date. Their new EP, Out of Prayers, is out now. Streaming, on cassette, on tour, everywhere you listen to music. This is four songs that embody uh, pop sensibility within the subset of dark post-punk, dark wave, goth, whatever you'd like to call it. Out of Prayers is the follow-up to the full-length 2022's Coast Goth. This is a much shorter affair. This is more compact, more in line with the music culture as it stands now, as the full-length seems to be going slowly out of style. I'm not here to bemoan that fact. I'm just simply delivering the message that it seems to be that everyone is releasing singles and shorter and shorter and shorter albums. And that's okay, just so long as they possess the same quality as Out of Prayers does, and it certainly does. Tonight, the sole member of Funeral Date, Mr. Tony Arnold and myself, discuss the project's trajectory recordings, how prolific he's been since the pandemic. We discussed the reason for the name change, all of the things that had happened in his life that served as inspiration for the lyrical content of this EP and the album before it. If you like what you hear in this episode or any episode of the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast, would you please like, review, Subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. Also, if you head over to my Instagram or Facebook accounts, follow me there, share my content, let your friends know that you like what we have going on. Simply doing this would mean the absolute world to us and help to bring to you 
more episodes of this podcast. On with the show. As not to drag things out any further, I present to you Tony Arnold, Funeral Date, on the book of Very, Very Bad Things Podcast. I had to do all kinds of like weird shit, but I don't know. Well, here we are. Yeah, we're here. We're it's it's good. Thank God. Um, and I fucked up yesterday royally. There was like all kinds of shit at work, and I got home late. And I had you marked down for Friday, even though like I go through our messages and it was all about Thursday. Yeah, I'm an asshole. That's fine. No worries. No worries. <laughs> so, how are you this evening, Tony? I'm all right. How are you? I'm I'm uh, no worse for wear, as it were. You know. Um, so I kind of want to like dive kind of right into, you know, Coast Goth. Like what was, um, that came out in August of this past year, correct? Yeah, it was uh, September 1st. Oh, September 1st. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, how long did that take to kind of put together for you? Well, I, before I started doing Funeral Date, I was doing it under the name Coast Goth Community Center. Mm -hmm. And I put out like three albums in 2020, like once lockdown started, I was like, well, fuck, I just hit recording hard and started putting stuff out. And um, the, the third one that I did, like half of those songs I ended up using for the funeral date stuff and I like reworked them. And then like once I kind of had the formula of like what funeral date was, then it was pretty easy for me to sit down and write the other half of the album. Where was your heads? What was your headspace like though? Like what were you listening to? What was like the point you were trying to get across that whole, that whole flavor? Because to me, like, even though like you, you say, you call it coast goth community center slash funeral date, people think goth, but to me, there's so much like uh film soundtrack, especially uh seventies horror film soundtrack, especially John Carpenter esque. Yeah, John and yeah, John Carpenter and uh, video game music, like yeah. specifically like 16-bit video game music, are like huge influences on all the music that I make. But yeah, John Carpenter, the whole like 80s synth uh, horror soundtrack—that's all huge. Um, I wasn't sure how well that was coming across. And one of the last shows I played, somebody said something to me about uh, that song, 24 hour birthday party yeah. sounding like a video game. And I was like, yeah, you're the first person that has ever caught that. Very but, much yeah. so. I mean, like it has that same staccato, like, you know, uh, Nintendo esque quality, like that eight bit quality. Yeah. Um, I can tell that at the very least you enjoyed those older games. I mean, I don't know how, old of a human being you are i'm almost 47 years old i'm 37 so we're we're similar you know yeah. we're not we're really not that far apart so yeah. you you know you were you were there you yeah you, yeah yeah you, you felt it you uh there's a charm to it and yeah it's all it's all stuff that just like you know i absorbed so much as a kid playing those games and like you know, I've always really loved that music, especially like, you know, you get into like that Donkey Kong country music and stuff where you can just listen to it 
as music and not just on a game, but it's also like when you're playing the game, you're hearing it on repeat for hours, you know, and it really like soaks into your subconscious. I think the first time though, like, and this is going into almost like the late nineties, the first time a game's soundtrack really struck a chord with me was when Trent Reznor did the soundtrack to Quake. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got that. Like that is, there's something very visceral about that soundtrack. And like, arguably Duke Nukem had some great sound design going on as well. Like there were games that really stuck out, but Quake, uh, it was so moody. And, you know, I think it elevated the the form. Yeah, I think so too. You You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there are a few bell ringers in that, genre i guess that that really like resonate with people and that was definitely one of them but i think lyrically too you're you're coming from a different place than someone who would be uh construed as making dark post-punk or dark wave or goth or whatever you want to call it because you're 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 not tackling uh these dark romantic kind of like tomes It, it has more to do with almost like it's almost punk rock lyrics it's reality based yeah you know what i Um, mean yeah and with some of it like at at the start i had heard some song on soundcloud and um one of the comments was pointing out like you know it's interesting that you have like more positive lyrics because you don't really hear that in this kind of music and i was like i wonder if i could do that like i wonder if i could make like love songs that are not like twisted necessarily and i Mm. I think that is kind of there in all of them like they all have like that slight little twist to them to add the melancholy but that's kind of what i was going for with you know at least in the beginning well yeah but when when i say punk rock too i mean like there is a positivity to what you do that is inherent kind of to like the the um especially the youth crew hardcore stuff but you know what I mean? Like it's it elevates in a way that I think most post punk and goth stuff doesn't necessarily even attempt to. You know, there's no uh, uh, basking in your own misery uh, lyrically. You know, and that's right. that's fun for the listener. Well, I think it, it may have been on the interview that you did with him, but I, I saw an interview with Tobias from Softkill, and he w- was talking about something that. I agree with, which is that a lot of this kind of music, like you listen to the lyrics and it's like, you don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Like, I don't, I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And so I want to have something that's more relatable. Mm -hmm. I mean, because what, what, what Toby does is he, he's not romanticizing anything. He's talking about shit that really happened. Yeah. It's not a allegory. It's not, you know, these dark romantic tales, there's no uh, Rimbaud to it all. It's real life. This really happened. I dig that. And and as much as I dig the other end of that spectrum where, like, the Sisters of Mercy are talking about, like, Lucretia, my reflection, I love that too, but... Yeah, but what the fuck does that mean? Yeah, exactly. It's it's more poetic license than uh, world-building or storytelling. Yeah. And I think the coast goth album is very world building so i I mean i think you know if you could could you kind of like key us into the world you were trying to build with it lyrically 
Well, like some, they're all about something. Like that, always falling is about my wife. Um, mm. There's um, that, there's that song "Grave Matter" that's about Catholic guilt, which is a real big thing with me. Me too. Yeah, I was raised Catholic, and me like too. I've I've been an atheist for like most of my life, and you don't get away from that shit. That's like yeah. ingrained, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's a big thing. That's a big influence on most of my stuff, and then like. There's that Heartbreak Beach song that uh, I wrote. So last year, my wife had a miscarriage. Oh, sorry. And um, that when we got home from the hospital, I sat down and wrote that. So that's what that was about. That was, that was, I think that might be the first time that I've ever sat down with something like specific in mind, like this is what I'm gonna write about. Because usually like, I'll write something and I'm not really thinking about it, but then at the end I can look at it and go, oh, okay, that's what this is about. But to lay yourself like completely bare and talk about something so personal and so heartbreaking in uh, the format of a song, that has to be a difficult hurdle. I mean, coming from someone who's, I've written, I've written an entire, entire albums, plural, that have to do with some really like some stuff that I may not like talk to a complete stranger about, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, know, you know, child molestation, incest, things like that, that came out in my most recent album a couple of years ago. I just said, fuck it. I'm laying it all out there. Um, but like, you know, a miscarriage, like losing that, that option, that, 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 that to be a father, you know, that's, that's a fucked up. <laughs> feeling. Yeah. We've, We've been crying for like eight years. So so it was like, you know, it finally happened and we were like, oh, yes. And then, you know, have that stripped away. It's and then there's also the whole thing where like as a male, like. It's it's almost like you're not allowed to outwardly show grief because you have to be there for your partner. or At least that's how like, you know, society makes you feel. Especially like coming from like me irish catholic you you're italian catholic i'm guessing right yeah yeah like uh, like we're we're kith and kin we're the same thing you know like like that idea of masculinity as this like like stoic and carved in stone like constant uh you know visage of of power and virility if you let that a chink in that armor occur you cry you you feel emotion in front of other men other people in general like you feel like shit even though that like you're allowed to feel that that's for you that's no one else's no one can tell you how to feel um that's that's courageous yeah but at the same time i feel like with art in general like if you want it to connect with people then you have to do that like i could sing about a bunch of stupid shit that you know draculas and stuff but i mean It's not going to mean anything. I feel like whenever I sing it, whatever, like I play it live, like I need to be able to like, like I'm expressing something real and not just, you know, like, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, you know, there's no. nothing wrong about, you know, singing about Dracula stuff. I enjoy all that stuff, but that's just not the road that I wanted to take with it. I, I think the, the bands from like the whole post-punk thing that resonated the most were the bands that didn't do that sort of thing though like uh joy division like lycia they didn't it wasn't about the theatrics it was about you know the content and 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 the artistry yeah um what really kind of stuck out 
for me as well with this album uh, was the fact that it wasn't trying to kind of buy into like, okay, soft kills big. Now we're going to sound like soft kill or, you know what I mean? Like it, it was still its own thing and it was still very punk rock. And yeah. That, and that, I appreciated that. Like I could tell that you probably came from like a, a punk or hardcore scene somewhere in, in your youth. Yeah. And I, I think that, that like, you know, I, I've listened to a lot of your shows and I've noticed that that's, kind of a common thread with people that make this kind of music or shoegaze mm -hmm. now is yeah. that we all came from metal and like you know i was a hardcore kid yeah. I, I owned many pairs of jordans and basketball yeah. shorts yep you know so that and you bring all of that like ethos to what you're doing i mean it's a different kind of world but it's not at the same it's time not. it's still punk rock i mean hardcore yeah. hardcore punk thrash metal comes from punk post-punk is obviously from punk we get to be punks but we get to be artists as well and that's the fucking awesome part about all this because we don't have to uh just make stuff people can like mosh and two-step to we can do something introspective creative and thoughtful and realistic and, and present it in a way that maybe you know it hasn't been heard before but it's right. still it's still okay because we're not codified anymore. And I, don't, I I've said this a million times on this show too. But I don't think genre matters like it did uh, in 1989 or 1999. I don't think so either. Especially with like Gen Z kids, they don't give a fuck. No, I love them. I love these Gen Z kids. Yeah. They they live their truth fearlessly. They don't give a shit who hates them for it or what kind of mockery is made of them, especially by the right. Um, who you know, fuck them, but yeah. you know, you know what I mean? These kids really get to embody their own spirit and like live their own truth in a way that I think about myself at age 13 in 1989, shaving a mohawk into my hair for the first time. That was a big deal back then. I rode a skateboard and had a mohawk. You can imagine what I got called in Northeastern Pennsylvania back then. Uh, but could you imagine, and I can't, uh, two of my friends who were of color in my same grade and at least two of my friends in my same class who turned out to later be uh, LGBTQ, what they were feeling at that time. I thought, yeah, yeah. I felt like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm getting picked on like this. And it was still screwed up the way I got treated, but it wasn't as bad as my friend Lionel and my friend Tommy, who Tommy got me into hardcore when we were even younger than that. Um, they were people of color. They were tormented in this white town and being a closeted uh, queer person, even worse. You know, these kids don't have to, they don't have to fuck with that anymore. They don't have to deal with it. They don't have to shoulder that burden. It's beautiful. Yeah. I'm kind of jealous. And I, I hate I whenever people get on this shit where they're like, you know, back in my day, we had to play outside and we didn't have the internet. I'm like, it sucked. Back then it sucked. Like Fly, Flyering at the mall, you can have yeah. it. Yeah. And like a, a good example of this I can think of is when I was a kid, I wanted to watch that movie Eraserhead so bad yeah. and I could not find it anywhere. No video store in South Mississippi had a racer head. And I finally was able to download it at some point once I got like cable internet and stuff. Yeah. But now, you know, I can turn on HBO Max and watch that shit. So, you know, I don't know. I don't miss 
that shit. I uh, would much rather have the convenience of access. Yeah, but because like uh, I come from tape trading. That was like impetus. That was that was me 1987 trying to find uh Metallica No Life to Leather uh demo. Me like and and you go into the backs of these magazines and you find people to trade tapes with. That's how I f heard Biohazard for the first time. That's how I heard Gorilla Biscuits for the first time because people would get their demos and I would trade like local demos of bands from here to them and you'd be sending shit back and forth through the mail. That it was cute, it was cool, but it was a pain in the dick and I would rather just log on and go on to Instagram or whatever and see who these new cool little bands are. Because who knows, I remember Turnstile's demo coming out. Now Turnstile is fucking massive and I don't bemoan them. There's nothing, they, they're not less hardcore because they're in a Taco Bell commercial. Right. You know, I'm sorry. I just don't buy into that shit anymore. I, I, but in the 80s and early 90s, I probably would have. Yeah, probably. And I, I came from that same thing. Like I used to um, trade Nine Inch Nails bootlegs. That yeah. was my big thing. I, was I love super Nine into Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. I used I've to be a that's, pen pals that's with Trent thing. Reznor back in the day. You do what? I was pen pals with Trent Reznor back in the late 80s, early 90s. Nice, nice. I've noticed too, like that's a big thing with people who do what I do, where it's just a solo thing, is those people were all at some point enormous Nine Inch Nails fans and took okay. that influence of like, I can just fucking do this. I don't need a band. I can just yeah. do it. Yeah. And, and who did it better really than Trent? Yeah, exactly. You know, Trent comes up a lot for me because A, you know, being a kid from Pennsylvania, and this kid from Pennsylvania is doing something so incredible singularly. And it was very subversive in 1989 when Head Like a Hole came out. Uh, the first time I heard it was in a, a really crappy sci-fi horror movie called Class of 1999. Came out in 89 and Head Like a Hole was the song in the movie. Then the video for that song came out on MTV and like, it wasn't that crazy. They were just guys with weird hair with dreads and stuff going crazy covered in uh uh it looked like vhs tape they were wrapped up in it yeah. and, and going nuts but imagine being 13 seeing that for the first time like oh yeah it, you, you know the next thing that comes on is bon jovi or whatever you know? uh -huh. that is a big deal yeah yeah that was that was like especially for me like i was I was listening to Fugazi then. I was listening to Morrissey then. I was listening to a lot of left of the dial stuff, but that just, that outpaced even the craziest metal for me because it was so experimental. Yeah. Nine Inch Nails was a big like jumping point for me into like rock and metal music in general because so like when I was a kid, I listened to nothing but hip hop. And then I heard the Limp Biscuit, which you know it's it's embar it's it's a guilty pleasure now. Why? Or, Why? Well, I guess now we're at a point where no one cares. But I interviewed so, Fred. I, I interviewed Fred Durst, but it was so unlistenable that I couldn't release it. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. But um, yeah, I got I got into that because it had that crossover appeal of the hip hop that I was into, and I was like, oh, this is cool. And it was like right when Three Dollar Bill would come out, when like yeah. Faith started popping up on MTV. So, like, right after that, though, I found Nine Inch Nails, 
and that then I started getting into like death metal and all kinds of like God, you know, God well, flesh. God, God like flesh. That. Uh, that's another like big touchstone for me. Uh, Justin K. Broderick can do no wrong. I love Jesu. I love God flesh. Oh, yeah. All like, but if you look right, I'm wearing a public enemy hat. Yeah. And Fear of a Black Planet and De La Soul, uh, Three Feet High and Rising are right there. Yeah. And, you know, that's like, I'm a hip hop kid too. I think being a hardcore kid, if you're not into hip hop a little, you weren't really paying attention. Right. And I think that hip hop influence comes across in my stuff too with like beats. The I beats. think like the beats are much more hip hop influence than like, you know, four on the floor rock drums or whatever. No, to me, it's more 808 breakbeat style, like, like Portishead style almost. Yeah, I use an Alesis HR-16, which is the same drum machine that one. Justin Broderick used. Yeah, I love it. It's so easy to use. I love it so much. But um, that, and even that, like, I remember reading an interview with Justin Broderick about how that's why they used that for the Godflesh stuff is because it was more, like, they had more hip-hop influence on the that's drums cool. than metal stuff. That's why he did techno animal too. That was like he was really feeling himself with the hip hop thing, especially with the electro movement in Britain at that time. Yeah, you know, and that's very evident in your album. Uh, I could tell you were into this stuff. I could tell like you're the type of person who would listen to Final and Techno Animal. Uh, what occurs to me too, though, is it seems like you had your ear to the ground with a lot of the really like the, the stuff that even people who were in the know wouldn't kind of really be into like bands, like the dark wave groups, like Lycia, like Thanatos, like the, all the, all the really fringy stuff seems like it's kind of in your arsenal as well. Yeah. And I also like, you know, really big into noise stuff and, you know, I've got like a Neubauten tattoo and a coil tattoo and stuff. Coil. Mm. Yeah. Coil was a huge thing. That was huge for me. With Coil, that was when I first started getting into like recording my own music. Is um, I was doing stuff that sounded like Coil, and um, the Chris and Cozy stuff is. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Uh, and you know it was a big one for us, uh, my, for my group of people here back in the day was the uh, the themes from Hellraiser Coil. Oh stuff. yeah, I love that so much. Oh, oh my man. god! It's it's a like. He he wanted it in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It they was said it was too scary or whatever the scary. quote was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have to give Clive Barker a lot of credit. N not only did he want Coil involved, but he wanted, uh, oh man, Tumor Circus, which was, uh, like, Dead Kennedys members. Yeah, in involved in it. Like he was really reaching into like fringy music, fringy. Like he was. Chris and Cozy, like everybody from Coil were into these magazines that were like body modification and, and S&M stuff. And that's what Clive was into. Yeah. Uh, aesthetically. And that's what made him make uh, the Hellbound Heart. That sort of thing was very influential on industrial and noise music abound all the way across the board. I think people forget that. I think they just think of it now as like a, a, a dancey version of metal where not really the case. If you, if you listen to like 
pre-industrial ministry. He was, they, they were new wavers, even like Trent Reznor before Nine Inch Nails, he was in a new wave band. That's where they all came from. Yeah. And it's the same for all of us, I think. We, we start, we have a starting point that doesn't seem like it, you can glean where we end up from it, but it makes sense in the wash. So bearing that in mind, when you were a kid, before you found like punk or hardcore or metal, what was that first kind of uh, al first album, first music that moved you in a very specific way that made you say to yourself, I want to be a musician? Um, probably Pretty Hate Machine. Like I, I think Nine Inch Nails, that was the point where I was like, I want to get a guitar. I want to learn how to make music like i i had that closure video you know that self-destruct oh, yeah. and that was what i wanted to do is like i wanted to i i still like that's my dream is to live out the self-destruct tour it, yeah. you know it's just so chaotic and just destroying keyboards and stuff but that that was the the keystone for me where i was like that's what i want to do do you, do you remember why though like what the first song was what the first exposure was that that really instilled that in you like was it was it a music video was it the first time hearing it a first lyric what, what was it what was it exactly i think it was probably terrible lie that like there was a video of him doing that and he's like super into it and it's you know he's like bearing himself naked these lyrics and stuff and mm -hmm. it was just the whole thing was so appealing to me because i'd never seen anything like that like my parents were into like top 40 stuff and like hair metal and stuff that was just like it's fine, but it's very like disingenuous. Yeah. You know? So to see that like just incredible sincerity was like that was what really struck a chord with me. And it's uh, like and like everything you do, terrible lie is open. It's airy and sparse, but it it hits in very specific ways, like those uh, arpeggiated keyboard fills when like because the drums like they're not fast it's just like boom din -in -it, din -it, din -it. and he's it something about it feels like it feels like the way when you're watching terminator uh, in the scenes from when the machines have taken over and the earth is wiped out and the cyberdyne like machines are coming at you that's that sounds the way that looks to me yeah um it's it's apocalyptic yeah, for sure. You, your music can be very, uh, for the positivity of the lyrics, can be very apocalyptic. I think that's something that comes from that, like, film soundtrack influence, too, is that, you know, that kind of music, like, paints a picture for you. Yeah. So Especially when you consider, you know, the John Carpenter of it all. Like, uh, what was it? Prince of Darkness. Very yeah apocalyptic film very overlooked for his canon too like people don't really bring that one up that much because well i don't know why because i think that's a phenomenal film it's actually my favorite one of his it's 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 yeah that and the thing the string theory favorite. horror yeah 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 like evil is a substance yeah evil is is tactile tangible they're staving it off they have it sealed up in vats and it's leaking and no one can stop it there's a a force of nature to 
you know, Armageddon and evil and sin. As a Catholic, that's fun. Yeah. That's fun. That's a fun, <laughs> fun little movie. And you get oh, yeah. Alice Cooper in there too. Like stabbing people a, with bikes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, we have a message for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and that, that brings me around to like another huge like influence thing is, you know, talking about Clive Barker and John mm. Carpenter is like the people that were always the most influential to me were people who didn't just do one thing like Harmony Kareen or David Lynch or somebody who like they make movies, but they paint, they make music, yeah. they write, you know, like th those were the people that always because you know, I, I didn't just make music. Like, I went to film school, and so I've made movies, and I used to paint a lot and write a lot, and so I, I've done everything. And I, I think that at a certain point, like, everything starts to influence it. So, like, music becomes influenced by literature and, you know. Well, as a, an artist is an artist is an artist. Uh, John Lennon once said, you know, uh, he was asked a question about, you know, the commerce of the Beatles. And he said, I don't know. And I don't care. I'm an artist. Hand me a fucking tuba. I'll get you a sound out of it. That's what it is. Yeah. I write, my wife's a filmmaker by trade. Um, you know, I make music. She's a, from a family of musicians. She's from jazz royalty for God's sake. Uh, we have just a, a, a vibe of art throughout our home and our son is picking up on it too and it's music it's literature it's film it's it's the visual arts as far as painting drawing it's all the same thing you're expressing yeah if you allow yourself to express yourself in any way you see fit it's art that's that's the greatest gift you can give to the world is an expression of yourself that may sound narcissistic, but we need art, don't we? Yeah, and that's just something that, you know, like Harmony Kareen is one of my biggest influences, period. And he talked about how once you start making multiple things, like it all just becomes one body of work. It's not just yeah. like, oh, well, here's my film career and here's my book career. Like it's all just, you know, one large body of work. And, and what Harmony has done really well, I think, is corner the market on weird. Yeah. Lack of a better term, because we all heard of Harmony Korine first from writing and starring in, for a little while, kids. But it wasn't until Gummo when we really knew what Harmony was about, right? Um, yeah, and especially, like, because I'm from the South, you know, I live in the South, so when I saw Gummo, like, that was the world that I lived in. Like, I I, I saw that, and I was like, oh, I've been in that house. I, I've met those people. Like, that. Mm -hmm. so that really touched me. And, um, and it, the soundtrack, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, everybody me on I a like. lot of stuff. At that time period, it was almost every band I was listening to then. You know, everyone from I Hate God to like, I the only band at that time that wasn't on there because I think they'd broken up by that point was Acid Bath. But the rest of like the whole sludge metal scene was united there. Yeah, and most of that was from Louisiana. So that was all yeah. stuff that I grew up 
listening to, but uh, movie soundtracks in general were a big thing for me because that was a way that I found a lot of music that I still listen to that, you know, because like my parents weren't into that kind of stuff and I live in a place that's pretty isolated Yeah. and I, I would have friends that had older brothers that were into the cure or whatever. And that was how I would get into that stuff. But like movie soundtracks too, like the crow or something like that. That yeah. was a big one for everybody. And yeah, the cure is on there with an original song that is one of their best. Oh yeah. Uh, that's burn. Uh, also you have nine inch nails covering joy division. You have Pantera covering poison idea. Yeah. And you have rage against the machine pretty much covering an inside out song from Zach De La Roca's old hardcore band inside out. Um, you know, the, there's so much going on there that even Stone Temple Pilots giving one of their greatest songs to that soundtrack. There's not a missed step in that body of work. For Love Not Lisa, when are you going to ever hear that band again? Yeah, Thrill Kill Cult. Oh, yeah, Thrill Kill Cult, where they were already kind of a, a cult standard at that point. But man, yeah, flawless. Same thing with you get judgment. medicine, medicine, yeah, with the yeah. Robin Guthrie stuff like that. That was a big thing that pushed me into like dream pop because like Cocteau Twins is one of my like Cocteau oh. Twins and The Cure are my two favorite bands. Yeah, I, and I Boards of Canada, Boards of Canada. Oh my God, you love good shit. Uh, my daughter's named after a song on that record right there. Um, Elise. Yeah, Elise. Um, there is so much of Cocktoo Twins and The Cure that inform everything I love about music. Uh, when I was a kid, like a young, young kid, probably six or seven years old, I was already a Cure fan. And Cocktoo Twins and Echo and the Bunnymen came shortly thereafter because they were on the radio at that time. Uh, yeah. not, not heavily, but they were there. Enough for me to notice, and it never left me. There was uh, 120 Minutes. I'm sure you remember 120 minutes. Oh, yeah. When that first came out on MTV, I was staying up really late at night in my bedroom with headphones plugged into the little, I had this little tiny, I bought it with my confirmation money when I was 12, this little television oh. set, you know, and I had the headphones jacked into it. I'm listening, waiting for 120 minutes and Headbangers Ball to come on on Friday nights. Uh, you could, You could still find things on MTV back then. That was a place... Yeah. Like, uh, yo, MTV raps, like that's how I found Dell and hieroglyphics. <laughs> you know, that's that's there, you could find it all if you stayed up late enough, especially. But where's the avenue for that now? Is it just is it just surfing Instagram and Facebook to find to YouTube? Yeah, and YouTube to find you, uh, YouTube is great because you can find so much stuff that like i remember when youtube first came out and i started looking up like sisters of mercy videos and stuff that like i'd never seen any of that shit mm -hmm. but I, I could suddenly find all of it and it was amazing i think youtube's one of the greatest things ever it, it really for an artist for a musician youtube is indispensable that's uh you put something up on youtube and you know how to coax the algorithm pop up at the right times you can really clean up there which I find it funny that I even found you to begin with because I was already listening to you when you told me you liked my podcast. It's not like I was 
not aware of you. Yeah, because I, I think you had you had randomly followed me and I was like, oh, that's awesome. Cause I mm-hmm. listened to your podcast and I like, how did you find me, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I was looking through I, I went down a, a rabbit hole on Apple Music. And everyone I listened to, I was going through, you know, at the bottom, they show you bands that are similar to. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember who I listened to. I think it, it wasn't Soft Kill, but it was maybe Lesser Care. And I saw you there, Funeral Date. I was like, that's a clever name for a fucking band if I ever heard one. So I just went right there and I listened and I really liked it. So I immediately went and followed you on Instagram and then like the rest is history. But the thing about this podcast is I don't bullshit. Like uh, if I like you, I'm going to try and have you on my show. Yeah. People, people have reached out to me that I don't really, I, it's not that I hate their music, but I'm not enthusiastic about it. So I'm just like, I, I back burner it and not to be mean, but what am I going to talk to you about? If I don't actually love what you do, that's right. disingenuous. That's bullshit. That's, that's pandering and fake. I, I, I don't care about that. Yeah. And like, when I told you that I liked your podcast, I wasn't yeah. like, Hey, maybe you should have me on. Like, no, that was my idea. Happened. That yeah, was yeah, yeah. 100% my idea. The second you reached out to me, I'm like, when you're coming on, bro, <laughs> let's do it. Um, and that's the way I like, I prefer to operate because when I did a fanzine back in 1991, that's what it was all about. Like I, I sought out the bands that moved me, whether they were local to me or maybe not so local. I would go into their records and you could find their addresses right in there. You write them a letter and either they go for it or they don't. But back then, normally they did. I base everything off of that experience that, uh, the idea that great music should be accessible. You're not on this pedestal. I'm not on a pedestal. We're all a part of this, uh, organism. Yeah. And that's how it should be. Do you play out a lot with this project? Yeah, I've, I've, I think I've played like 15 or 16 shows since last year because it was about a year ago that I rebranded and changed the name to Funeral Date. And, and I like uh, your old name, by the way. I really like that name. <laughs> yeah, um, thanks. Whenever, um, I like last year, we went to a soft kill and um, I talked to Toby for a while and I'd mentioned that, and he was like, I really like that name. But yeah, Funeral Day's more on brand, which, yeah. you know. But um, once I like rebranded it, I, somebody had messaged me about playing a show, and I had never really played a show where I sang. Like, I, I've played shows, I've been in metal bands and stuff, like death metal bands, and played, and, you know, so I wasn't new to that, but yeah. I wasn't new to like, exposing myself like that center in front of, of people yeah and it, also like being by myself it's you know when you're up there with four other people it's different than when you're up there by yourself because you know everyone's staring at you mm-hmm. and it's uncomfortable Very. so i've gotten really big into using the fog machine a lot because then i can't see the people and that helps <laughs> a lot but um yeah i got a show tomorrow actually um, oh awesome but yeah, I've been playing a lot and I'm constantly surprised that the kind of people who come up to me and tell me how much they liked it, it's like people that I never in a million years would have looked at and said like, oh, this person likes the cure, but they'll come up and they'll be like, 
oh, I love, you know, and they'll start name checking bands. And I'm like, how the fuck do you know this? Like, yeah. what? And it's just amazing. It's really great. There's no, you can't really pigeonhole people anymore. Like we were saying before about the Gen Z set. They're not, like, uh, you see me walking around with in an ink and dagger shirt. You know I like hardcore. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no question. Like, people don't know ink and dagger. They are a Pennsylvania uh, gothy hardcore band from the 90s. They were a very specific thing. Um, but these kids now, they're not, they, they look either plain or whatever, but they don't look like they're into anything left of center. Uh, and it surprises you every time. Uh, my little nephew, which of course I'm an influence on, but you know, he's a preppy little kid and he discovered black metal and death metal. He's like, Uncle Pete, you like mayhem, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've liked mayhem since your mother was your age, <laughs> you know? Um, it's unassuming now. You don't have to dive headlong into uh, a subculture to be a fan. And I dig that. I think that's important because it, you come by it more honestly that way almost. Yeah, because I'll have these guys come up to me that are like super thick accents, like straight off the farm country dudes. And then they're like talking about the cure and stuff. And it just blows my mind in the best possible way. Yeah. Um, who have you been playing with? Just any like local bands usually because I'm the only person doing what I'm doing around here. Yeah. So, and I, I think that's another thing why like what I'm doing doesn't quite sound exactly like everyone else that's doing what I'm doing is because I'm isolated. Yeah. And I'm not in a big city where there's 50 other bands that are doing this that I'm influenced by. So I'm only influenced by like stuff that I like, which is so varied yeah, and all over the place. But it, it's not like, you know, I've got five other dark wave bands that I'm friends with that I'm trying to keep up with. Well, no, I mean, you're friends with kicking and they're like, I, I don't even know what you call them. They're heavy, but they're also like shoegazy, but they also oh, have, yeah, they're the homies. Yeah, I love the, them. The, to me, they, there's like an aspect of quicksand in what they do, like because it's it. There's post hardcore in it. There's so many different flavors in that band, but they're still like almost stoner rock in a way. In a yeah, great well, there's way. there's more bands in Mississippi that are starting to pop up that are closer to what I do. Like where I'm at, there's nothing. There's one band called the Murs that. I love it's more like psychedelic like experimental rock like they'll cover suicide songs and stuff oh and, wow um but they, they're the only other band that's like completely different than everything because on the coast where i'm at it's like pop punk blues and um like metal like the this you know the i hate god kind of metal yeah like like sludge metal yeah, but so in like Hattiesburg and Jackson, there's more bands popping up. Like in Hattiesburg, there's this band called Detects that does post-punk. I know Detects, yeah, I know. Yeah, that. I saw that you follow them too. Like, yeah. I, I love them. Um, he's a shy guy, Warren. 
He's yeah. good though. I love I guy. love Warren. I love Warren, but he's just too shy to do an interview. Yeah, and there's like, uh, and it, it's great now because especially like you know that band MS Paint starting to pop off. Yeah. So that's casting a lens on Mississippi. People are starting to look. And I, I talk about this a lot. It's good that like all of us are starting to find each other and we're all starting to connect. And so now, you know, it's one thing when you look and you say, hey, you know, there's this cool band in Mississippi out in the middle of nowhere. That's weird. But it becomes something else when you look and go, oh, there's a scene in Mississippi that yeah. is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And, and but what it takes is bands, you know, to create these scenes, to to you know inspire kids to form scenes to become their own microcosm yeah and that's that's a big thing is i'm I'm trying to get more because i know there are a lot of kids that make this kind of music that are you know in their bedroom and stuff and i've met some and i'm trying to get them you know you got to get out and play shows and it's good because they're seeing me do it and they're seeing that people like it yeah and that's really inspiring i guess to them which is great sure because that's the lesson like if you just put yourself out there a little you get so much more in return yeah you, you know because it, it just takes showing up putting a little effort into actually playing in front of people and the returns are so vast like to make music in your bedroom is one thing and it's great and it feels good to do it but when you're in front of I don't care if it's five people who really like what you're doing. That's a charge. That's a high. That's, that's oh, yeah. unlike anything else. Yeah. And because now I'm at a point where I'm starting, like more people are finding me. And so I've got people that are showing up to shows just to see me. Like mm -hmm. the last show I had, there was a group of like goth people that came in and I was like, they're obviously here to see me. Cause I was playing with like a doom metal band and like yeah. some straight punk band. And I was like, they're definitely here to see me and they're just dancing the whole time and it was i don't know it just felt great incredible incredible yeah. so are you recording something new when's the new album uh yeah coming down well, the pike i've i've actually got something like 25 songs recorded I, i've always recorded a lot and i've been very prolific with that and it's like Making music to me is like, even if nobody was listening, I'd still be doing it because it's my therapy. You know, yeah. it's like, I, I always tell people, it's like the only reason I make music is to have something to preoccupy myself so I don't kill myself. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yes. Um, but so I'm constantly recording stuff. I've got a two song single that I'm going to put out soon. And then I don't know if I'm going to put out an EP or an album. I'm thinking that like albums might be done because... They I are. noticed that, I, I've noticed that the the way like it, it has to do more with attention spans than anything because I'll look at my Spotify plays and like the first half of my album will have a decent amount of plays and then the second half it'll drop off significantly. Yeah. And so I'm thinking I'm gonna do EPs. Like two to four songs, seven max seems to be the industry standard now. I mean, especially when you look at the hip hop sphere. Um, a good example would be. Uh, Kid See Ghosts, which was Kanye before he went completely off the deep end with Kid Cudi, who I do respect. Uh, that album did incredibly well. There's seven songs on it. Then Kanye did the Nas album with seven songs on it. You don't have to do 
12 to 15 songs on a record anymore for it to be considered an album. Five, yeah. or, six, five or six songs, that's a good record. Well, even, even if you look back at some of those early post-punk stuff, like 17 Seconds or Faith, like those songs only have like eight or nine songs. Yeah. You know? They're pretty short, like, and two of them will be short instrumental pieces. Even if you want to go back further, uh, Led Zeppelin's Coda or um, Presence, there were seven songs and eight songs, respectively. Yeah. It doesn't have to have a, a 10. Like, usually 10 songs seems to be, like, the standard for a full length. Nobody cares anymore. Uh, if you were to just say fuck the album format completely and release one song here two songs there it's all the better Trent Reznor is another example the last three releases five six seven songs yeah you know it, yeah it's just no, that attention span thing and but no, um, nobody bitched no one cared yeah but um yeah so I think I'm gonna try to like send it around to some labels and see if anybody be interested before I just put it out myself. Like I'm not really in a big rush because I'm still trying to get people to listen to the last one that I put out. Like I, I used to be bad about, so when I first started like learning how to record, because I've, I've always played music, but it was around 2012 that I sat down and was like, all right, I'm gonna learn how to do this myself. And um, I started making noise and recording it. And my, the, the, the project that I had at that time is called Dudes. And I just started recording everything and releasing it because before that I had like recorded stuff and I would delete it. Mm -hmm. I'd get depressed and delete it, you know? And um, then, so I was like, if I start posting it online, then it'll be harder for me to delete it and I can just archive it. And then people started finding it, but I, I made a little net label or whatever to, you know, as a way to catalog it. And I think the last time I checked, there were like, 530 albums on there and i'd say at least half of them if not more are mine because i had some people contact me and i was like well if i put out stuff from other people it'll legitimize it more but like most of the stuff that i made that i was just you know putting out everything just i was off my meds and totally manic and just oh uh, yeah you know, you know how it goes yeah i do um <laughs> yeah, I do. but <laughs> you know that game but um, then I started to slow down and the noise became more like song based. And at first it was sort of like black dice kind of yeah. stuff where it's like rhythmic noise. And then they just turned into songs at some point. And then like once I started doing the funeral date thing, I was like, all right, well, I need to slow down. And because I'm playing shows and I'm putting more time, like I put more time into mixing that because I recorded it myself. Yeah. mixed it myself and everything and I, I put more time into that than i've ever put into anything and it's still like lo-fi because it was done in my bedroom so it's gonna have that inherently lo-fi sound but um i don't know i just wanted to spend time to get it sounding because there's a difference between lo-fi and just sounding shitty yeah you know? yeah very true um but when things are lo-fi yet are well written they there, there's a, a quality to that that becomes timeless. Yeah, and that that's why, because I've looked into getting other people to mix and master my stuff, but I don't really 
more of like a money issue because it'll get expensive to get somebody who will do it well. Yeah. And so, you know, and everybody's always said that, which is, you know, as long as the songs are there, the recording doesn't matter as much. Not as much. I mean, as long as it's still translating, it's still, you can still, you know, kind of get the point. Most of the stuff that really resonates with me to this day are things that tend to be, you know, like four track or eight track recordings done in a bedroom because, you know, it harkens back to like Elliot Smith's early work or, or, you know what I mean? Like it's intimate. It has, it's like someone's telling you a secret. Yeah, stuff like yeah, that, that was always huge with me too, like Sebado and yeah. stuff like that, all that early stuff where it was just four track. I've got a couple four tracks. I've got a another project called Goblin Paw that's just four track straight to cassette raw black metal. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. I love that shit. I love that shit. Yeah, like that Zaster kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. That, that's the most unhinged music on earth when you listen to like Zaster or uh, Leviathan um, Did you ever see that Vice documentary? Yes, yes. Where that that guy is like, there's like some fucking hipster dude interview interviewing the Zasser guy, and he said something like, you know, I don't talk shit about stuff that I can't back up. Like I'm not saying I'm gonna kill myself. What I'm saying is maybe you should look into killing yourself. Yeah. And that guy, like, you just see the life drain out of him. Like he's so <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> it, like he he thought he was gonna be like cool guy, and then he's like, oh, I'm in like a real place now, and I don't think I want to be here. Yeah, like this guy actually actually feels the way he's speaking to me. Yeah. Like nothing against vice i think vice does great work but that dude was outclassed oh yeah you know he goes over he goes over and he he interviews people who are actually like for lack of a better term criminals and people with real problems you know people who have experienced violence people who have uh mental problems real life problems something that i wouldn't shy away from because i know all about it yeah but this guy is just he's some suburban dude that like oh yeah i like one man black metal that's made you know in bedrooms that's that's my shit you don't know because you don't understand there's there's a a darkness that's coming from that that actually exceeds the stuff that was going on in norway when they were burning down churches yeah it's it's not all just cinematic at that point right but I, I respect the people who make that kind of music because it's pure. Oh, it, yeah. It reminds me of what grindcore was when I was in my first grindcore band in the early 90s. You know, it was political. It was uh, almost hippie in a way. Yeah. Because we, we were all vegans. We were all animal rights activists. We were all socialists. Um, you know, and, and we were trying to show the world that or or turn a a mirror on the world so they can see like the sound we're making is the way we feel about you right you know that that was the point that was the protest um i think what you do maybe is not a protest but it's certainly a reflection of an honesty in you that doesn't pander or or try to ascribe itself to uh a genre, a, a, a movement. It's just, you know, this is me. This is my truth. 
No, and I've also never been good at like I'll sit down and say like, all right, well, I want to, I'm going to make some dark wave stuff, but mm -hmm. it doesn't come out exactly how like in my head I'm thinking I want it to sound. Like it, it never comes out that way, and I I think that's just most artists, you know, it never comes out the way that you want it to come out. But that doesn't mean it comes out bad. Right. I mean, Billy Billy Corrigan said it, uh, you know, with uh, the first like what was the first ep before the first full length i forget it was like a it was a single but smile wasn't it smile the first um, smashing pumpkins i i think so when when he'd recorded that he said it he he went into it with the intention of making it sound like this massive uh pink floyd statement and it came out as this jangly angular like bleak indie rock and it informed the rest of his career, but it was never the way he intended it to sound. That's beautiful. That's well, perfect. even well with them too. Even like I found this video I'd never seen of them before from some like cable access show in Chicago in the late '80s. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, where they're yeah, playing like more gothy stuff. They were goth. They were a goth band. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was they, awesome. They, they they were trying to be like. Uh, somewhere between like a darker new order w mixed with like uh sisters of mercy almost thing but more more punky and they got more psychedelic and more hippie almost and it served them so well it served them so well <laughs> yeah uh, to come out with like gish is a wonderful album and rhinoceros is a juggernaut of a song but when siamese dream came out the like Cherub Rock was the first single, but the first hit truly was today. It is the most uplifting music in indie rock that had ever been made. And lyrically, it was about killing yourself. Yeah. What a dichotomy. Well, that that's what, that's <laughs> something that I talk about, which the Pumpkins are a huge influence on me, and they have mm -hmm. always been. But one of the things that I talk about with my music is that it's like happy, sad. It's yeah. Like, it, so I, like, I want it to be like danceable. Like a, a lot of the Cure stuff is like that, especially yeah. like around the mid to late '80s. Is like it'll be danceable and stuff, but then you listen to the lyrics and you're like, "Wow, that's incredibly sad." You know, you know what? Another Just thing. <laughs> Yeah, well, another thing that's like that is I'm super, I've always been super into like 50s music, like doo-wop and stuff. And there's like this song called Runaway. Oh, yeah. That's, right? uh, I think it's Del Mitchell. Oh, is it Del Mitchell? Del something. I don't know. Anyway, it's like super dancey and you listen and he's like, I'm a crying in the rain. Yep. Tears are falling. And you're like, wow, this is incredibly sad. But Wishing you were here by me to end this misery, and I wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah but it's, super, it's super poppy. And um, I don't know. So that's kind of what I want to go for is, like, like I don't want to capture the depressing side of gothy stuff. Like, I want to capture the poppy sound of it where people can dance, but I want to capture that melancholy Well, that's what through, the like, the lyrics. Yeah, yeah, that's what the Batcave era was all about in the goth scene uh, in England. You know, it was a dance club, but it was, you know, like all of these, like, uh, oh, God, uh, I'm trying to think, like Red Lorry, Yellow Lorry, and the Bolshoi, all of these bands that were musically dancey, 
guitar wise melancholy lyrically suicidal <laughs> yeah well alien then, I think, sex fiend is like that like i think the band that i've like and there's one song in particular is that band the dance society yeah you know that band yeah they have that that song somewhere mm-hmm. like that is the exact song that, like that's what i want funeral date to sound like that's what i'm going for is it's it's like poppy kind of it's got the synth in there and it's just so good like that song just makes me feel like i'm melting it's great and what's great about that um is it all does kind of date back to like runaway and you know in the 50s there was some very very dark music occurring in the confines of like popular rock or you know what i mean like it was all like roy orbison was the most depressed motherfucker ever to play rock and roll yeah there's there's a uh roy orbison song and this was something that i've kind of like taken note of is it's i think that the first lyrics are something like um your sweetheart doesn't love you anymore not my sweetheart doesn't love me anymore your sweetheart doesn't love you anymore yeah, and that that's like I, I've tried to do that second person thing a lot in my music because mm-hmm. I, I I think that that that's something that a lot of music is like it's a lot easier for other people to relate to it if the I is not in there. Yeah, because you're you're talking to the third person. You are you're orating. You are you're in a discussion with the listener. Yeah, and because I've also always liked music that was like vague enough that you may know what it's about but you can still take it and apply it to meaning something else to you like it's not so hyper specific that like you know like that heartbreak beach song like it's not hyper specific this is what this is about the miscarriage so you can listen to that and you know apply it to you know i'm going through a breakup or something and that so that that's kind of what i'm going for with the funeral date stuff now in in writing and executing and releasing heartbreak beach does that lead to healing for you sort of it's every time i play it i um like tell the story about what it's about before i play it live yeah and um I always fuck it up. I, I I always like make little mistakes on the guitar parts, which I just I kind of do that live anyway, and I don't really worry about it because I feel like because I'm playing backing tracks and then I'm playing guitar and singing over it, and I feel like that adds like a punk rock element to it, though. You know, like sure. those little mistakes because the backing tracks are always going to be perfect and they'll always be there to save me. Yeah. But but going back to that song, like. I've had a lot of people come up to me after I've played and tell me like, you know, I went through that or I'm going through that. And it's nice to hear people, somebody talking about it because it's something that is like, oh, well, you'll just get over that. You know, like people don't really talk about it, especially men, you know? So I think that is, has helped with the healing is like, being able to relate to other people about it yeah and to know that other people are able to relate to what i've written 
because that's yeah. that's the ultimate thing right with art is you want other people to connect with it yeah because it's a relationship uh it, people aren't just listeners uh if they're really into what you're doing they're not listeners anymore you are in whether you like it or not a relationship with the listener you you've both tapped into something you have you've created it but the person is like an antenna they're picking it up they're they're processing it it, it becomes a part of them <clears throat> so it's as much theirs as it is yours that's a a, a beautiful reciprocity that's a symbiotic relationship it's 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 indescribable to someone who isn't an artist to kind of get on board with that but i really feel that way i feel like if you've written something that's especially of some sort of emotional weight and another person re it resonates with them you have some kind of rapport and reciprocity with that person and you yeah that is a help to them yeah and i think that that's a big thing with because like nine inch nails like that was a big part of what all of those songs like i was like 16 when i found them and i was going through like a bunch of shit and that stuff really touched me and like helped me and gave me something to like oh i'm not the only person that feels this way yeah and so that's what i've always wanted to do with music is you know if you hey. can touch one person then but i i also subscribe to that that you know if you <laughs> It might be mine when I'm recording it and everything and writing it, but once yeah. you put it out, it doesn't belong to you anymore. Nope. It's everyone you know? else's. It's everyone yeah, it's in the else's. Ether. It's in the ether yep. now. And um, so, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. So uh, you've been listening to my show. Uh, I'm pretty much going to guarantee you know what my next question is going to be because it's the only question that I ask everyone. Yeah, but ask it for the sake of the listener. For the sake of the listener. <laughs> for the sake of the listener, yeah. What is it that terrifies you on an existential level? So when when I was a kid, I think what, because I've been thinking about this, and I think when I was a kid, my biggest fear was like not making it or whatever, you know, yeah. not living up to what, not being the person I wanted to be, getting stuck in some shitty career or whatever. Yeah. But I think as I got older, like how I define success has changed. So it's not like, you know, I'm not living out the, the, the self-destruct tour video playing arenas. So I'm a failure. Like that's not how I look at success anymore. So I think now my biggest fear is not being able to take care of my family. Yeah. And not being able to take care of myself. I, I think that, you know, as as especially getting painted into the corner of, of the masculine archetype when we did, because we're both from the 70s and 80s, you know what I mean? Like, that's when yeah. we were born. That still held true, right? Like, to be held to the standard of, of the, the provider, the protector, the you know, the male archetype of, of Clint Eastwood or, you know, Charles Bronson of it all. Like, you have to toe this line. You have to be this solid, upright man. Uh, which, I guess there's... It, it's it's cool if you that's who you want to be and that's the line you're towing, good for you all. But in all actuality, a man is as sensitive and as fallible and as 
all feeling, all experiencing as any other gender you can possibly be. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's really unfair to put that on ourselves, but I think men of a certain age were just stuck with that. Oh yeah. I um I, I found this video of like Christmas when I was a kid and my like my little brother's gay, right? Yeah, mine too. And um he there's this video of and my, my little brother was like obviously like when we were kids, he From was birth. like into the Disney princesses and stuff. Like yeah, you knew. Yeah. Yep. But I, I found this video and it was like Christmas and they they got him like a jasmine doll or something from aladdin and my grandpa's like the people gonna think he's a sissy with them dolls yeah <laughs> dude and yeah. I, I was like that's it that's like the whole thing is like that's that's what you were faced with that attitude you know have growing up when i did uh my brother gavin he's not the youngest of my brothers but my two youngest siblings are both my brothers it's a whole bunch of girls i come first bunch of girls than my little brothers. Um, my brother Gavin, from the time he could walk, wanted to play with all of my sister's Barbies and, you know, walking, trying to put their shoes on, high heels specifically, and walking around in them and laughing. And I knew that. I knew yeah. that. Uh, my dad, Vietnam veteran, tried to be a hippie, failed miserably because he was just who he was uh, from the time period he was from born in the forties said some really fucked up shit and, and did not make that kid feel very secure. It was my job to step in on that and be the protector, you know? So I, I, I did my best to deflect and, and keep him away from that negativity, but you're born that way. Aren't you? Like you really, you really are. I think in most cases, like my little brother, like I knew it was always when we were kids, you know, he was, I, we were playing stuff. He wanted to be Catwoman yeah. or he, you know, it was always like the female character and it was always like this inherent, like femininity mm-hmm. to him to where you just knew. Yeah. So I remember when he came out to me when he was in high school, it was like this big thing for him. And I was like, yeah, I know. I know. Did he get I've mad at you? Known. Yeah. Yeah, it's me like, too. I don't care. Like, me it's too. fine. When, when my brother came out to me, I said, I know, dude. He's like, don't say that. Okay, Gavin. But I knew, and I, I didn't give a fuck then. And yeah. I, I still don't know. You're still my brother. It doesn't matter. But I, I loved the fact that the time period, my brother didn't come out until he was in his 20s, and he'd already had a girlfriend that he lived with and did all that. So when he finally dropped the bomb, I felt a weight lifted off of me for him, even though there was no weight on me. It was just like, oh, thank God he could just be him now. And, and, and that part's over. Um, the world now, you don't have to even bother. That, I think that's why I internalize so much of modern Gen Z society, why I so enamored of them because had my brother been born at a different time period, there would have been no pressure. It would have been very little blowback for him. High school wouldn't have been my youngest brother getting into fist fights over protecting him because I was older. I couldn't be there. Obviously I was away, (laughs) you know, um, it's just, it's, it's a sick 
sad thing that anyone had to suffer for who they wanted to be or who they felt who they were inherently um i that's not my experience in life because i was born cisgendered and straight yeah i was just a weirdo right <laughs> it was easier for me and i i think like the the thing with the new generation is you know you still have these old conservative boomers saying the fucked up shit but now it's these kids are like you know i don't give a fuck you're not gonna bully me into not being who i am yeah. like fuck you and that that's just great I love don't, you, it. don't you think there's a, a a component of being a catholic that's also kind of negative concerning homosexual human beings even if they weren't explicitly saying this is a sin that's a sin you know, there there's an air of it, and biblically speaking, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of the Bible that concerns itself with just that. And you know, the Bible's not divine; it was not written by God or or uh, uh, anyone except people. Right. It was written hundreds of years after those people that told those stories had died. Yeah, yeah. There's no like we we can't go fact check that, but. It was written by fallible men, presupposing that, you know, the divine exists. Why would God, as we were to understand God from the Catholic perspective, need a bunch of dudes to write a rule book for him? It doesn't make sense, right? We None of it does. I, well, I remember when I was a kid, I, you know, I got put into catechism, Sunday yeah. school stuff, yep. right? And we got to like the point where you did communion. Mm -hmm. And I kept asking questions like, why, why are we drinking wine again for Jesus? Like, explain this to me. Yeah. And they couldn't. And then they got pissed because I kept asking questions. So they sent me to the office and <laughs> I just had to like, you know, write down like Bart Simpson, just writing Bible verses until my yeah. grandma came to pick me up. And then I was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. Like, and that, that was kind of when I knew this whole thing is bullshit. Yeah. Well, like, the, you can't just give me a straight answer. Even, you know, I get that I'm a child, but like, I'm sincerely asking and, you know, yeah, there like, are no answers. It's just like, because I said so. Yeah. And, and the thing that like my sticking point was always, always when it came to catechism uh being an altar boy confirmation uh my beef with the whole faith and the whole book everything if god were truly all-knowing all-forgiving all-powerful why did the book of job even happen why did satan have enough agency over anything that he could place a wager on the life of another human being with God who's supposed to be omnipotent. Why, why did God entertain that and fuck this guy's entire life up? And the consolation price is, well, I gave him a better wife and better kids and a better farm. That's, that's a fucking terrible lesson. <laughs> well, it's a, I think a big thing with that is that most like, Catholics and probably just Christians in general, like they've never read that book. Yeah, they've they never cracked that book open. Like one time, I was having this 
debate with my grandpa about religion, and he was like, look, go over there by my chair and get that Bible and open it up and look. And I, I went over, and it was a book that was called, like, Positive Bible Verses or something. And it was just, like, selected, like, not even the entire book. But yeah. It was just just these little sections. And I was like, Grandpa, that is not the Bible. <laughs> yes, it is. That is the Bible. And I was like, oh, my God. The annotated even... book of awesome Jesus. <laughs> yes, yes. Buddy Christ. Buddy Christ the book. But I was like, obviously, I can't have this discussion with you. Like, this is going nowhere. My argument for Jesus has always been this. If Jesus were the person or God-man that the book touted him to be, if Jesus were around now to experience the people who are preaching his word, and and devoting their lives to his teachings, he would smite them all. Oh They're yeah, well that's the worst like, motherfuckers I've ever met in my life. <laughs> well, that's like, did you ever see that video of that Lauren Boebert bitch who was like, yeah, um, talking about how she was sick of separation of church and state, and she said, she said this: if Jesus was alive now, he would want an AR-15. Yeah. Okay. She the Prince of that. Peace would want a machine gun. Yeah, she said that. And, like, sincerely, I think, believes it. It's, I don't know. These people are so fucked up. If you, like, take take the supernatural out of it. Take the, you know, the omnipotence out of the Bible. Take the Old Testament out of the Bible and just look at what the words of Christ were. Was, don't be a dick. Yeah, pretty much. Don't be and they're all failing dick. at that. They're miserably. all failing at it miserably, yeah. He was a big hippie with a big heart who got fucked over by his best friend. It's it's like a John Hughes fucking film. And, you know, like, wow, man, just don't be a dick. And if you fail at that, how are you a Christian? It's not hard to just be a good person. You know? At all, at it's, all. It's really not. Don't steal shit, don't lie, don't kill anybody, and try your best not to fuck around on your wife or fuck your friend's wife. What? It, it, you could do that standing on your head. Yeah. I think most atheists that I know have a better chance of getting into Christian heaven than Christians. Or Satanists. Or sa well, Satan Satanists are like so much more moral than most Christians are. It's ridiculous. I have I have my my card. I, I've been a member of the Church of Satan since 1994, since I was 18. Um, you know, uh, and Anton LaVey's whole bent, his whole tenet was, you know, the innocent are the most satanic because they're pure, just they're free. Uh, I remember reading Satan Speaks by Anton LaVey, and it was just a bunch of essays he'd written toward the end of his life, you know, he was really starting to see, you know, what his life had amounted to. And he was talking about his youngest son, whose name escapes me and watching his son just screw around, play on his dad's piano and chase the cats around the house. And he said, there's nothing more satanic than a small child because they don't, they don't hate. They don't concern themselves with, vanity or or greed 
or, or anything other than just having a good time, wanting to get a hug and a pat on the head and being close to the people they love and just having fun. If that's, if that's satanic, sign me up, bro. Yeah. Sign me for up. real. Um, there's no evil in, in the church of Satan. I've, I've, my, my wife is very Christian. I've told her this a million times, like Anton LaVey Satanism. There's no Satan. Satan doesn't. Yeah. Exist. Satan doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's a it's all about iconography. Yeah. Which that, that's a big thing with Catholicism that I do enjoy is the iconography and I'm covered. tattoos and stuff. I'm covered in Catholic tattoos because I think they're beautiful. You they know, really are. Yeah. Like, the visage of Christ itself is gorgeous. Like, you know, like uh, Guadalupe, I have tattooed on me. I'm not even Mexican. It's just that they're, they're gorgeous icons and they stand for something beautiful uh, at their heart. But in all reality, it's the same thing as believing that being a, a Democrat or a, a Republican is going to change the way the world works or it's going to signal to others what you are i'm neither and i never will be yeah. um, I, I i i fuck democrats fuck republicans they're part of a machine they're just trying to get your money oh yeah nothing to do with the way the world really works because money rules the world money oh yeah they're just looking out for their rich buddies yep that's the whole thing and i, I always get like tripped up whenever these like crazy Trump people will be like, if you didn't vote for Trump, you must be a huge Biden fan. And they'll be like, well, what about oh, yeah. Biden? Do you think Biden should get investigated? Yes. The, the what about is yes. Biden should yes. be investigated because they should he's all be dirty. Investigated. Yeah. Fuck all of them. What about Obama? Obama was dirty too. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I voted for the man not once, but twice, but you know what? Uh, I've said it before on the show, but what kills me, what killed my opinion of Barack Obama, who I had been enamored of, I loved him. He, when the water crisis was going on in Flint, Michigan, he went to speak to the people who were largely African-American uh, about to give the speech. And he's like, can I, have a, can I have a glass of water? No, 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 not the bottled water. Just give me tap water. That's all. I, I just need tap water. No, this isn't a stunt. I just want the tap water. It's like it's not a Barack. It's a yeah. stunt. You're yeah. not drinking that fucking water. You're not drinking that water because you know it's killing these people. But you're trying to send a message that it's not. That is disingenuous. That is corporate, and that is sick. And I knew he was a sellout from there on in. It's not like I'm picking on Obama. I I think. The Clintons are some of the most evil people that ever lived. And I voted for Bill Clinton. The first time I ever voted was for Bill Clinton. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It just, it, I, I got to the point where I started to see it all for what it really was. And it's just a masquerade. It's a game. Uh, I could vote for Bernie Sanders until I, I'm blue in the face. The man's never going to ascend to the seat of president because they don't want him. Right. Is too dangerous. Yeah, it's like like the, I voted for the first time ever in the last election, and like I wasn't voting for Joe Biden. I was voting to against get Trump, Trump out. You know, we what were I mean? all voting against Trump. Um, I, I I voted for Biden because I was voting against Trump, not because I like Joe Biden. 
And yeah, he's, exactly. He's from my hometown. He's from Scranton. He's a terrible person. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not as terrible as Trump. No, but terrible. Like, but, but terrible. Yeah, yeah. For certain. We're never going to get a president that's going to care about us. It's not going to happen. The best we can do is find someone at the local level that isn't as terrible as the rest of the people at the local level and get them in office and try to affect change in a microcosm. Because as much as I grew up uh, being raised by hippies, having that mentality that one voice can change the world, it, it can't. But what one voice can do is get to another set of ears who could become another voice, who could get to another set of ears, who could become another voice, and then we can become a movement. Well, that's why they want to shut TikTok down, you know? Yep. Because we're all hearing each other's voices, and they don't like that. (laughs) So what 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 are your immediate plans musically next? What's your next goal, your next immediate, like within the next two months goal? Just try to play more shows. I've got like six shows lined up over the next, like between now and May. Mm. And I want to get more shows out of state because I played in like Hattiesburg and Jackson, which are like two or three hours away. But I want to play in like Louisiana and Alabama and Florida. And I've been talking to people over there. So hopefully that'll work out because, you know, I just want to play in front of as many people as I can. And I feel like people over there would dig what I'm doing, especially in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if you ever had a hankering to come up north, I can certainly get you something in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York. Nice. Without, without question. And I could get you a place to crash in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, so I guess to kind of wrap it up, um, what would you like people to walk away from this episode with in accordance with or concerning you know, your music your uh, album, what what you're putting out into the world. Just that it's sincere, which I think is the most important aspect of it, is that it's, you know, I'm saying about stuff that I mean, and I'm saying about stuff that I think is important to me, and I'm not just trying to, like, write a bunch of shit to sound cool, mm-hmm. which... I think most of that kind of music is just like, what can I do to sound cool? Which is fine, but that's just not what I want. No, because like if we think about the bands that make music kind of in line with this, there's five or six that are really, really excellent at it. And they're the honest ones and everything else is kind of noise in the background. Yeah. You know, Uh, that's the thing that had struck me most about this record about what you do is it's not contrived at all. It doesn't ascribe to, you know, (laughs) Dracula music as, as Toby calls it, you know what I mean? Like it just, it doesn't, it doesn't try to be that brooding artist in the corner, like, you know, with the black yeah. lipstick on trying to be all mysterious. It's just an expression of self. And that's the most important thing you can do. 
is just express yourself. Yeah, that's all I'm trying to do. And, you know, I never know how well it comes across, but it seems like it's coming across pretty well, I guess. It is. It is for certain. I, I, you didn't miss with me anyway. <laughs> all right, brother. So listen, it's it's 10 something at night. I uh, I bent your ear quite a bit tonight when the next record's getting ready or single or whatever is getting ready to come down the pike ready to go would you hit me up and come back on here and we can talk more about it yeah absolutely awesome my friend yeah i'd like that i uh i had a great time with you tonight i can't wait yeah to do so it did again. i yeah so did i all Thanks right for so much for having me on thank you for coming on i appreciate you all right man have a good night you too i had a great time talking to tony excellent human being love him to death love funeral date please by all means go out download the record buy it on itunes listen to it wherever you stream music it's well worth your time uh also go backward a little bit check out the album coast goth absolutely incredible stuff fully fully immersive beautiful encapsulates the sound and spirit that he'd set out to accomplish with the danceable misery aspect the happy sad of it all he's been tony of funeral date i've been peter of this podcast you've been beautiful and this has been the book of very very bad things podcast have a great night everybody from 3:33 a.m studios take care Yeah.